This week on Q&A, editorial cartoonist Michael Ramirez. Mr. Ramirez, a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, talks about his book, Give Me Liberty or Give Me Obamacare. Michael Ramirez, have you ever drawn a cartoon of Muhammad? And if you haven't, would you? You know, I haven't. And uh, I probably wouldn't, to be honest with you. You know, I, I don't do humorous cartoons for the sake of humor in the same way that I don't do controversial cartoons just for the sake of, of controversy. The point of editorial cartooning is to try to reach a message to the audience that won't be overshadowed by the controversy surrounding it. And I think where there might be an opportunity to use Muhammad, just the fact that having that in the cartoon would overshadow the point that I'm trying to make really take away from the effectiveness of the cartoon. So it's not that I'm opposed to using uh, Muhammad, it's just I'm, I'm more for ensuring that the message that I'm trying to, to communicate gets to the audience. This is a, a personal question, uh, and I, when I read this, I, that's the first thing I wanted to ask you about. We'll talk about your book, of course, yeah. but are you really the brother to two sisters that are medical doctors and two brothers that are medical doctors? I am. In fact, when you add their spouses, we have like nine people uh, that are closely related that are all doctors. In fact, you know, Brian, the only way I can get to show up at family reunions is I say, well, you know, I deal with politicians and I, I, I deal with Congress. I'm sort of like a proctologist. And then they sort of let me into the family reunion. <laughs> but go back to the two sisters and two brothers that are medical doctors and how many of their spouses? Well, you know, we've got... Uh, my my older brother is a, a fertility specialist. His wife uh, is not a doctor. She's the only one. All the other ones are doctors. And then my grandmother and my grandfather were both uh, in the medical profession. My grandfather was a physician in Japan. My grandmother was a pharmacist. Your mother and father not. You know, in fact, I wanted to be uh, I wanted to be a doctor. I never wanted to be a political cartoonist. I wanted to be a cardiovascular surgeon. And I was, I was saying this uh, in a speech the other day, that, you know, President Obama got a Nobel Peace Prize for doing absolutely nothing. I should get one for all the lies I saved by being a journalist instead. Go back to the beginning. You have a Japanese-American mother and a Mexican-American father. Yes. How I'm, did that happen? I'm half Japanese, one quarter Spanish, one quarter Mexican, and completely confused. You know, um, my dad was in the military for 23 years. He was in Army Intelligence. And... He met my mother in Japan, and so uh, she, she moved to the United States. I was actually born in Japan, in Tokyo, Japan, uh, me and my older brother. The first language I spoke was Japanese. And so, it, it, you know, it's been a long road. I, I've lived in all over the world. It's been good exposure because I lived in Belgium for a year, Germany for two years, uh, Paris for eight months, and on and off uh, between the United States and Japan. But the political cartoon came to you when? You know, I never anticipated being a political cartoonist. It's the strangest part of the story is uh, I really wanted to be a doctor. Um, you know, I, I recall reading the newspaper every morning with my dad. We had two uh, when I was living in California. We took the Orange County Register and the L.A. Times. The L.A. Times had Paul Conrad, and uh, the Register had Jeff McNally. Jeff was working with, I think, the Richmond Times leader at the time. Um, but it, they ran his cartoons in there. And so... We had this uh, morning ritual where we would have breakfast. He would read the L.A. Times first. I would read the Orange County Register, and halfway through, we would swap papers. So I, I was aware of political cartoons, and I love political cartoons, especially, and I love Paul Conrad's 
dark images. Uh, they're just really moving, and they had these deep messages. And I think Paul took that a step further. I mean, uh, Jeff took that a step further with this wonderful sense of humor that I think extended the reach of the cartoon by reaching a much larger audience with the message, with the humor. And so, like any other reader, and I loved looking at the political cartoons, but I never in my life envisioned me being a political cartoonist. I just stumbled into it by accident. We're going to show a whole bunch of cartoons from your new book. Okay, great. But before I do that, this may have been in, this is your what book? This is my second book. Second book. Mm-hmm. This cartoon may have been in, in your first book, but it's not in this one. And it was very controversial. You'll remember it because the Secret Service came after you. Right. But it's the cartoon. You explain what it is. Right. Well, basically, it, I used a, an old photograph, a very uh, iconic photograph from the Vietnam War era, where the uh, the Saigon police chief had just caught uh, this uh, Vietnam, Vietnamese uh, terrorist who had killed a colonel and his family in Saigon. He, he basically executed him on the streets of Saigon. I used that iconic image uh to uh, portray George W. Bush being assassinated by politics during the advent of the of the uh, first Iraq of, of the Iraq War, I mean, and that image itself uh, somehow got communicated to the Secret Service that I was advocating uh, assassinating the president or something like that. But honestly, uh, I don't think I ever really was investigated initially. I think what happened was, uh, now Drudge led a, um, a headline that said political cartoonists being investigated by the Secret Service. And uh, boy, when I got into the office at the LA Times, we were inundated with calls wanting to interview you know, this conservative cartoonist being inter- uh, investigated by a conservative administration. But uh, I had really not been contacted by anybody in the Secret Service. In fact, at the LA Times, the general rule was all you have to do is call and start cussing, and they would automatically forward you to my to my phone. And uh, I had not really received any phone calls before this story broke. And then, as it turned out, the L.A. branch of the Secret Service did end up contacting me, but it was only because we had this big publicity about me being contacted by the Secret Service, and I think they felt left out. And so I, I got a call in the middle of the day after numerous calls, and uh, this guy said, I'm with the Secret Service. I'd like to see you. And I said, well, you'll have to get in line. How do I know you're with the Secret Service? And he said, well, I've got dark sunglasses, a black suit, and a black tie. And I said, well, by all means, that proves it. Come on down. And I, I thought it was a crank call. And then uh, 15 minutes later, my secretary said, Mr. Ramirez, the Secret Service is here to see you. And, of course, the uh, I was willing to go down and see him. I, I couldn't remember of any counterfeiting that I'd done. Uh, lately, anyways, and the uh, the LA Times dispatched their uh, lawyers, a team of lawyers down there, and they promptly escorted him out of the building because we didn't want to set the precedent of having a a journalist being interviewed by the Secret Service. Well, that that particular scene, uh, there's eight. We have 18 seconds of video. It was shot originally by Eddie Adams, the AP photographer, and also somebody for NBC. Let's watch this 18 seconds to show how graphic this is. Yes. Ha! 
how did you I mean you're not that old to know remember that are you right well you, you know I do I do sort of remember it um, I don't remember that entire clip of course back in television those days I don't think they showed the entire thing but I do remember the photograph as being a, an iconic image of the Vietnam War and uh, you know that's what political cartooning is about using images that people are familiar with to relay a point of view so another controversy that you were involved in was a I was involved in another controversy. Hate no. <laughs> cartoon. Yes. And that was, and you were accused of uh, showing the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall over in and, uh, uh, Jerusalem, and here it is on the screen. Right. What, what was that cartoon? It was called uh, Worshipping Their God, and what I did was I took the, sort of the, the uh, stones that looked, you know, sort of like the, the Western, the Wailing Wall, and I produced the letters H-A-T-A. And it was at the time of the first Intifada where I have this figure that's kind of a, a conglomeration of uh, extremist Israeli settlers and uh, people that were opposed to the, the, the establishment of Palestinian state, the, the people that were kind of creating all the violent upheaval there. In addition to that, having a, uh, a Palestinian figure who have if you if you notice he's on um, a prayer rug but he, he has his shoes on so um, both these figures are sort of utilizing a false religion for a political purpose and instead of really pursuing a religious advocacy I thought they were just worshiping hatred and so this cartoon when it appeared I actually got numerous complaints from both sides both the uh, the Jewish groups were upset that I'd used the Wailing Wall figure, and the Palestinian groups were mad at me because I was accusing them of hatred. So uh, it just proves that once again I am an equal opportunity offender. <laughs> when was the first time an editor and you were syndicated? So how many different papers at the are you syndicated now? But about 540 papers around the world. So I get hate mail in all languages right now. When was the first time an editor said I'm not going to run that? You know, I've only had one inc incident in my entire career. Um, it was with uh, my editor, Angus McCarran. Lionel Linder was the editor of the Memphis Commercial Appeal, and he's the one who brought me over to Memphis, where I won my first Pulitzer. And you were there seven years? I was there seven years. And um, Lionel was killed in, a, in an awful accident on uh, New Year's Eve day. And um, Angus McCarran took over from him. Angus was the uh, the editor of the Pittsburgh paper and uh, the rumor was thick that uh, you know Angus was very very liberal and Lionel was very conservative that I was going to be one of the first people to go because you're conservative because I'm very conservative in fact we had uh, we had uh, civic leaders uh, lining up in his office for three days straight uh, telling Angus to fire me and so uh, we had we had a pretty terrible beginning in fact, uh, he kicked me out of one of the editorial meetings because I, I, I like um, engaging in the editorial meetings. And on the third day that he was there, on, on a Wednesday, the uh, topic was on welfare reform. And, uh, you know, they're trying to, to advocate working in order to get uh, welfare. <clears throat> so I did this cartoon where I had this Uncle Sam figure lying in an alley holding a cardboard sign that said, we'll work for food. And he's looking at the headline on workfare, and he's turning to the bum next to him, and he's saying, you mean they actually want me to work? Which was a totally legitimate cartoon. Well, Angus canned it. And so I went up to Angus, and I, and I said, uh, 
you know, this is a legitimate cartoon. I think it ought to run. And he said, well, it's not going to run in this paper. And I said, well, I'm going to send it to my syndicate, and it's going to run in all my other papers. And he said, fine, but it's not going to run in this paper. He used more explicit language than that. And uh, and so I I called up my accountant, and I said, uh, you know, we better get everything together. I think I'm probably leaving. And uh, I demanded a meeting with Angus on that Friday and uh, went into his office, and I said, look, uh, you've got five illustrators in this newspaper that are better artists than I am. If you want them to draw what you want in the newspaper, then I think you ought to hire them and let them do your political cartoons. I'm an editorial cartoonist. My job is to think of these profound images, break them down into something that's very easy to present to an audience and understand and give my point of view, and it has my name on it. If you want to put your name on the cartoon, by all means do it. But uh, I'm an editorial cartoonist, and I'm not going to draw your cartoons. I'm going to draw the best cartoons that I can. You give me the freedom to do what I do best. I'll research these cartoons. I will substantiate them. I'll do great editorial cartoons. I'll win you a Pulitzer Prize. But I'm not going to draw your cartoons. And if you're going to fire me, I want you to fire me right now. And uh, Angus laughed at me, and he said, no, no, you can just do whatever you want. And from that moment on, we got along great. And he gave me the complete freedom to do whatever I want. But that was the only incident where I had a cartoon uh, killed. How long were you, the L.A. Times? I was at the L.A. Times for about seven and a half years. And what happened there? You know, I think there was just a mutual parting of ways. Uh, they were looking for ways to cut costs. Uh, philosophically, it was, you know, it was never a very good fit, I don't think. And we, we had talked about Paul Conrad, my predecessor. And Paul and I are probably as diametrically opposed philosophically as two uh, people can be. But, um, and, and you know what, Brian, they actually wanted to limit the number of cartoons uh, that I did every week. In fact, I had to negotiate upwards to try to do more cartoons. Um, and so, you know, there was a huge transition between publishers, and I, and I worked for the publisher, and <clears throat> as the publishers came and went, I think the familiar, familiarity between me and the publishers uh, left as well. And then there just came a point where they're looking at cost cuts. They wanted to change. Uh, I'm not sure they ever embraced my philosophy. It's probably the only job that I had uh, you know, outside of military service where I had to put on Kevlar and a helmet to walk <laughs> through the newsroom. We'll talk about your new job at Investors Business Daily. Not new, new, but I mean, <clears throat> where you are now. Yeah. But let's look at some of your cartoons from this book. Okay. This book is called Give Me Liberty or Give Me Obamacare. Right. Why the title? Well, you know, because uh, they wouldn't let me put an illustrated guide to impeachment. But uh, I think when, when I look at this Obama administration, the things they've done, this massive expansion of government, uh, you know, we have $128 trillion in unfunded liabilities when it comes to entitlements. You know, 15 million more Americans that are on government aid. I think more than anything, that sort of is the onus of what this administration represents to me as a political cartoonist. Uh, a big government progressive regime, uh, unlawful regime. And what I'm proud about in this book is it really makes the case on all the things that they've done wrong. And history, past history is a good way to provide for the future. You know, we're getting into a, another presidential election cycle. I'm hoping that, uh, you know, this will spark the initiative for people who want real change to get back to our constitutional foundation government, to enact them, to get involved in the process, because that's what political cartoons are. We're the catalyst for thought. And 
to educate progressives who haven't seen clearly uh, what the consequences of these disastrous policies have been. By the way, for f- folks that have, don't know your politics, <clears throat> one of the introductions in your book is from Dick Cheney, and the afterword is from Rush Limbaugh, right. so there's no question where you are. Right. Uh, but I want to show a cartoon. This sure. one is from 2008, and it's headlined there, uh, the 47 million uninsured. Right. And for those that can't see it, the first figure says, I can afford it, but I don't want it. And then there are 18 million underneath that person. I'm 18 to 25 years old and I'm indestructible. There are 8.4 million at the time. I'm illegal and I'm not here. I have 12.6 million. I'm in between jobs and only temporarily uninsured, 9.4 million. I'm covered, but my parents have not signed me up yet, 8 million. And I'm eligible for government health programs, but have not signed up, 3.5 million. And then you have a little asterisk, adds up to more because some categories overlap. Right. You know, and this is the sad consequence of what I think the the media not doing its job. It's sad when a political cartoonist has to point out the factual basis of a relevant debate. You know, this 47 million figure uh, has never been really proven proven by. It. In fact, it, I think a week after the administration ruled out that 47 million were uninsured, that uh, they brought that number down to 37 million because they they really pulled it out of midair. I think from what I've read. Um, and the sort of, uh, you know, the the uh, investigations that were done at the time. I think we were talking about four percent people that were that that were uninsured at the time. Here's another one from 2008, and you'll see it uh, with a there's a woman standing there with an amateur over her head, and she says, <laughs> "I'm I love Cornhuskers," and then you have two senator women senators walking by. What's that? Well, no, they're not not, not two women senators. Oh, I know that's right. Yes, that's right. And uh, and Ben Nelson saying amateurs and the uh, prostitutes are saying senators, and this was really on Obamacare and the kind of uh, you know, the kind of uh, gift making and and uh, trading that was done to convince these senators to go along with this uh, with this program. You know, they they basically had to bribe and use chicanery in the process, change the rules to enact Obamacare, and so that cartoon really points that out. Here's one from 2010. Tell us about the Mad Hatter. Well, the Mad Hatter is uh, Nancy Pelosi, and she's saying you, uh, you have to pass this bill so that you can find out what's in it. And this is the most ethical Congress ever. And once again, it, it was on based on this Obamacare scheme that uh, this administration was going to push through, utilizing whatever methodology they, that they could. And this complicated, complicated bill that nobody had ever read was going to be passed and thrown onto the American public without really knowing what was in it or what the consequences of what was in it was going to happen to the population. The cut line on this is, please remove these items from your person, and it's from 2010. Right. And this is on the, the debate that's, that's going on today, which is on the Fourth Amendment. How far do we go to protect our, the general public, and what constitutional rights do we have to exchange for safety? Uh, which is, you know, there's a real question as to the extent of that. Now, the thing that defines America is our Constitution and the liberties that we have and the freedoms that we have. And hopefully the fear of of this uh, danger from these terrorist groups won't overcome our common sense to redefine what America is. Up there in the corner on that badge, it says... 
uh, TSA, and then inside it says U- U.S. Uh, Department of Groping. Yes, and that that was when you had the uh, you had a number of stories where the TSA uh, guys were getting a little bit uh, a little bit touchy feely. But I, I heard a bunch of them got a bunch of phone numbers too, so that was a good thing for them. Here's 2014. <laughs> the police are keeping us down. Explain this and what you're. The, the art of this and what you're trying to do for the person that picks this up in the newspaper? Well, you know, the juxtaposition of, of the reality of what's going on in, in, in the black community, which is that the vast majority of homicides and killings are done by black-on-black crime, and yet there are some of their civic leaders that are blaming it on the police. And as we've seen, uh, you know, uh, just recently in, in the uh, the cases with the San Bernardino and the uh, p- the policemen who led these these people that could have been hostages out of the out of the building, saying I- I'd be willing to take a bullet for you first. Um, the police really have a, a, a terrible, terrible job keeping us secure, and, and it's just made harder by this uh, movement that is blaming them for the irresponsible behavior of other people. Now, in certain circumstances, obviously, uh, the police ought to be condemned for for their overzealousness or, or you know, the, the, the horrendous things that have happened. But in the vast majority of the circumstances, they're there to keep us safe. People should be reminded of that. Here's 2012, and it says the cut line is a darkness rising. Yes. And explain this one. Now, this one was, um, this is really directed toward a new generation of folks that are being brought up in a different way than perhaps uh, you know you and I were where, where we had a, a family unit. There was a cohesion. There's kind of a, a person-on-person uh, a, a relationship. Where the new millennials have a lot of violent video games. They communicate in ways where they're, they're they don't really see people anymore. And I think when, when we had this incident, which was this cartoon is about the uh, the shooting in Colorado. Um, the question in, in the Batman uh, movies, the question was what what changed this person into this monster? The lack of communication, the lack of human contact, playing these uh, violent video games, these are all questions for Generation Y. This next one's complicated, uh, you know, if you're sitting at home watching it, it'd be hard to see it, but it's from 2012, and the headline on it is, A Weapon Guide for the Uninformed and average homicides are deaths per year per category. And off on the left there, you have what looks like an AR-15 right. uh, semi-automatic. This rifle is the same as, and then below it says, military-style assault rifles, mass shootings, 18. Now, is that 18 people at that time? Yes. At, at the time when I did this cartoon, I wanted to compare the, the, the homicide rates and what, what type of instruments of murder are used and, and what the damage is. And, and you know... The problem with the with some of the progressive media, I think, is they uh, exaggerate things to sort of fulfill their political agenda. Like the, this idea that these weapons that look like assault rifles are in fact assault rifles, and there's a there's a big difference between uh, uh, you know a uh, automatic weapon where you s- squeeze the trigger and it fires off many rounds, and these long rifles, which are the same as any kind of hunting rifle that you when you squeeze the trigger, it just shoots one bullet. So I wanted to compare and contrast how many murders are done with other instruments. And, and in this cartoon, you can see that uh, you know blunt objects, um, revol- handguns, which nobody's talking about banning, uh, drunk driving, 
people using their hands and feet in violent acts, auto accidents, constitute far more deaths than these uh, mass shootings. For those listening and not watching, auto accidents, 32,000. Right. Rifles, 453 were killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, 6,009 people were killed by handguns. 674 by blunt objects. You have a hammer there. Right. 1,817 by knives. Drunk driving, 10,839. And hands, feet, and fists, 869. And that is in one year, I said. That's in one year. And, and I think uh, uh, the statistics came from the FBI statistics. But you know what? If we're going to have a debate about these issues, you have to know the facts. They have to be grounded in facts. And let's put everything on the table, figure it all out, and then figure out exactly what we're talking about. Cartoon here from... Um 2009, and again, the figures are kind of small. Explain what you see in this. Well, um, you have two Indians, and they're looking at the uh, the, the new invaders of, of the new world. And uh, one Indian saying to the other, running bear, not another word about immigration reform. Now, be polite to our visitors. And of course, the motivation behind this is on immigration and uh, how uh, the Indians probably didn't worry about immigration back then. And Therefore, now you see who, who's dominating the new world. It's kind of a, a tongue-in-cheek play on uh, what's going on in immigration. I think, you know, for some of us, there's a delineation between immigration and illegal immigration, just like there's a delineation between Islam and radical Islam. Leaders that cannot figure out the difference between the two probably shouldn't be guiding our government. We've got some liberal cartoonists. And by the way, if you were to stack them all up, how many are going to be conservative in this country? How many are going to be liberal? You know, we're, we're outnumbered probably probably nine to one, uh, I'd imagine. If if there's 1% of the conservative cartoons out there, or 10% of the conservative cartoons out there, uh, I'd be very surprised. Who are some of the other leading conservative cartoonists? Um, boy, there just aren't that many, to be honest with you. Uh, there are Steve some, Benson? No, Steve actually went the other way. He started out being very conservative down in the Arizona Republic. Um, but then the debate that he had within his church, which was the Mormon church, and he left the Mormon church, he's now very, very liberal. So he's become very progressive. Yeah, we're, we're outnumbered. I mean, I could na- name you half a dozen progressive cartoonists that I love, uh, liberal cartoonists. Um, but when it comes to conservative cartoons, there's only a handful. I mean, Gary Varvel in Indiana, Scott Stannis in Chicago, which is probably more center-right than far-right. Um, there's a ton that have been retired or left their paper. But uh, uh, the McCoy brothers, Gary and Glenn McCoy, uh, I think uh, Nate Beeler is probably center-right. There just aren't that many. One of the most celebrated political cartoonists in, at least in my lifetime, is a man named Herb Locke. And they did a documentary of him at HBO. Uh, here is him, Herb Locke. He appeared on uh, uh, Book Notes in 1993. He's deceased, and when he when he died, he gave $50 million he earned at the Washington Post to a foundation. So here's Herb Locke. Here's a cartoon from the year 1950. Uh, the, the headline on it is, you mean I'm supposed to stand on that, and right up here is the word McCarthyism. Did you invent that? Yeah, apparently so. That's the first use uh, made of that word that, that, that I know of, and I, I remember how it originated because I wanted to put something on that tar barrel, and you couldn't call it McCarthy himself, 
and you wouldn't say McCarthy techniques or so on. And uh, I thought, well, maybe I could just use one word, McCarthyism. And, um, you know, it caught on. So how often has a cartoonist, from your experience, developed something like McCarthyism or some other term? You know, it happens very rarely, I'd imagine. And, and you know, to be honest with you, I, I don't really look at other political cartoons at all. Um, Never? No. Well, you know, I, I do an occasion when my cartoons were in a roundup or something and somebody says, hey, uh, here's your cartoon, and it, there, there are other cartoons there. But, you know, we all deal with the same issues, um, especially with the 24-hour news cycle with, with cable. Uh, I just don't want to see what my competition's doing. I, I, uh, you know, I, I'm, I want to deliver a message to my readers. That's the most important thing in my mind. And I, I really don't want to see what anybody, what anybody else is doing because I think we're going to talk about the same uh, subject matter and uh, I don't want to subconsciously uh, adopt one of their ideas or anything like that. How often do you find people that don't focus on what the politics are uh, of, of cartoonists? Um, well, you know, or I, the I, opposite. How often do you find people that really completely understand what you're trying to do? Well, you know, I, I think, um, you know, because you and I are into politics, we think in, in that way. But I, I don't think the vast majority of Americans actually think in that light. And in fact, I'm, I'm really surprised with, as I give speeches around the country, and I give speeches all the time, how closely unified the American people are on the majority of the issues. You know, they're divided on a lot of substantial issues, but for the vast majority of the things, Americans are very much closer together than, than people uh, would think. Uh, you know, I think uh, there's uh, people in political organizations that have an agenda that want to draw these people apart because it helps them. But uh, there are more things that unify us than divide us, I think. A cartoonist that's appeared here many times over the years, he's now 80 years old, still alive, Pat Oliphant. Mm-hmm. Uh, here is, <laughs> this is back in 2014. David McCullough is on the stage with him. But I want you to see what he does when he's drawing uh, Richard Nixon. And right next to Richard Nixon is Lyndon Johnson. Okay, great. <laughs> Patrick, I get the feeling you have a good time doing that face. Well, it comes back about once a year. There's uh, a strange uh, afterlife he has. I didn't know he was left-handed. <laughs> <laughs> so, when you were growing up, what cartoonists, <clears throat> besides Paul Conrad at the L.A. Times and others that you mentioned, yeah. did you pay any attention to? And what about the drawing part of this? You have, I'm, I'm going to show one in a minute, where you have a certain way that you draw. How would you explain the differences? Uh, you, you know, um, my influences were whatever was running in the newspaper uh, and the people that I liked the best. Pat Oliphant was one of them. I think Pat is just a phenomenal uh, political cartoonist. And, and you know what? I can appreciate the art form itself and what it's meant to be, which is a, a uh, mechanism to influence people, uh, regardless of what you know, political uh, 
party you're affiliated with or broad philosoph philosophy that you're affiliated with. And Pat does it better than most uh, anyone I know. Uh, I think Jeff was in that category. I Jeff think Paul Con yeah, Jeff McNelly was definitely in that category. Uh, Jeff was a good friend uh, and uh, sort of a mentor. I, I, I loved Jeff's work. He added an element of humor that I think was a great tool in expanding the audience of a political cartoon, which is something that I try to utilize in my cartoons itself. And then Paul Conrad, of course, because just the uh, the dark, you know, foreboding images that he had, but they would reach you and touch you. Um, I think that's what good, effective political cartooning is all about. You know, I, I kind of view political cartooning almost like advertising on television. You know, you've got about five seconds to capture the viewer's attention. You've got another five seconds to deliver the point or to sell the product. The only difference is with television, you're selling a product. With political cartoons, you're selling an idea. And believe me, I'm, I believe that I'm trying to reach people. I believe that I'm trying to change people's minds or reinforce the ideas that they have for a purpose, which is my view of what the United States ought to be with this self-governing, a democratic republic is all about. The, the, the power of America lies in its people. And, and uh, you know, less government, more people. The people should have the power, they should wield this power because of the kind of uh, political celebrities that we have today. People forget it's the, it's the politicians that work for the people, not the other way around. Back to some cartoons from your book. This is 2014. A familiar face will appear on the screen. Uh, and how have you drawn her? Now, Hillary has been great. Uh, in fact, I have to say the Clintons are probably my favorite political family. You know, I won my first Pulitzer in 94 uh, on the back of uh, that administration. Uh, this cartoon where Hillary's saying, I was dead broke, that'll be $200,000, please. Um, she's at a podium. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's when she was professing, of course, not to have any money, and yet she was making $200,000 a speech. Now, the... Uh, you know, the relationship that, that Bill has with his interns is probably the same relationship that Hillary has uh, with uh, the lack of being able to tell the truth. Uh, I think she makes for great political cartoons. But how did you, you know, how did you draw her on purpose the way, you know, she has little tiny mouths and teeth? Yeah, you know, when you take the, a caricature of somebody in political cartooning, you're changing the dynamics of, the, of their features, not only to make them into a cartoon, but to show sort of the dynamics of their personality uh, as well. If you notice in my, my uh, President Obama cartoons, uh, the more he's caught not telling, you know, in prevarication, the larger his ears get. So it's reflected, and, and you could see that in, uh, you know, Pat Oliphant's uh, caricatures of Richard Nixon. You know, as he got more immersed into Watergate, the shadows on his face got darker, and his eyes got darker, and, and Pretty soon, there were barely eyes. There were just uh, little black holes in his in his head. I remember asking Pat Oliphant years ago. Um, he was not particularly friendly to the Jimmy Carter administration, and I asked him, "How has Jimmy Carter changed in your cartoons over the years?" And he had a very simple answer. He said, "He's gotten smaller." Yeah. And at the end of that administration, he was tiny and in the corner. Right, and, and that you know, there's a perfect device. You know, the one thing that we have over our uh, journalist colleagues is we have exaggeration. We get to create our own world, and the dynamic of that world reflects on what we're trying to say with the personalities. When did you go color? Uh, I went color when I first started at IBD, when I left the LA Times. Inter Investors Business Daily. Yeah, Investors Business Daily, which 
because I'm a capitalist pig. That's just, I have to say it's the best editorial page in the, in the country. And uh, You write some. Well, I do write some. You know, I, I get to co-manage the editorial page there. Um, it's been an expansion of my duties. And frankly, we just we have great writers there. The one thing I love about our editorial page is we're not afraid to tell the truth. You know, th- people are giving praise to Donald Trump for his bluntness. But I've been doing that in my entire career as a political cartoonist. And we do that on the pages of Investors Business Daily because we want people to have the facts out there and then defi- decide for themselves how they feel about it. And you're located things. where? We're located in Los Angeles, but we, you know, we have offices all over the, you know, in New York and, and D.C. And uh, I think our new printing plant's going to be in Texas, actually. I've seen, uh, last estimate I saw, about 156,000 daily circulation. I, is that hard That hard copy? Yeah, that, that, that's strictly print. Yeah. How much, we, how much do you go we, digital? Well, you know, I, I don't know what the numbers are, to be honest with you, but we've rapidly expanded digitally. In fact, uh, that's sort of the emphasis of our, our newspaper now because we're reaching so many more people that way. Here's a cartoon, and it looks like you're... Cutting both sides. I mean, there's a mm-hmm. um, Erskine Bowles is in on the left, mm-hmm. and uh, Alan Simpson, the senator, in the middle. <clears throat> the uh, Bowles Simpson Simpson Bowles uh, Commission, and then you have a little tiny kid over at the right with a uh, his uh, formula there, his uh, right. milk, milk bottle, saying "cut spending." Right. Remember, they they convened this this uh, debt commission, and and uh, you know, I don't know how many millions of dollars they spent in putting this debt commission to, to figure out. You know, the solution to this now $18 trillion national debt that we have. And, and, and Bolskin saying it's very difficult. Alan's saying it's very complicated. And the little baby saying just cut spending. You know, it's, a, it's amazing when you look back at our budgets. Uh, I, the last time that, uh, that George W. Bush was president and we had a Democratic uh, majority in the House and the Congress, and uh, he was roundly criticized for overspending, which was right. I mean, I did cartoons against that as well. But... Uh, I was looking back at that that number in the last year when when you had the, that configuration, and the deficit was 160 billion dollars with a B. Seven years later, at the apex of the Obama administration, where they had a Democratic majority in the House and the Senate, uh, that that deficit rose to 1.3 trillion dollars. That's not even to mention the uh, the growth in those seven years of how much federal spending increased during that period of time. I mean, I think at the time it was like $2.4 trillion was a federal outlay, and then it was almost $3 trillion, if not over $3 trillion within seven years. Population growth was like 4%. How big does this government have to be, really? And when you, when you read these endless stories about the duplication of services, you know, Obamacare has basically become a, an expansion of Medicaid, um, and uh, you know, it's costing taxpayers a huge fortune, and yet they're not receiving better services. You know, with me, uh, it's about having a smaller and more efficient government. And the realization that we have a finite amount of capital out there, and you can divide it a couple ways. You can either give it to the, uh, the people that innovate and they create jobs, and they use a, a dynamic economy to grow. Or you could give it to bureaucrats that do nothing but shuffle paper and are inefficient in what they do. A cartoonist is deceased. Uh, we did an interview with him in 2008, who is probably as far left as you are right. I want just I want to know what you think of this. He's talking about a car. He was not the same kind of a. You saw him mostly in in uh, magazines like the New Yorker, and then uh, I think he also drew for um, the New York Review of Books. But anyway, it's David Levine. Uh-huh. 
several drawings of Henry Kissinger. I understand one of them was rejected by a publication? Uh, no, uh, by all other than one pu publication. That is, The Nation. In fact, The Nation was known as a, uh, among cartoonists, that, you know, if you really had to try something or you wanted something that would be uh, loaded in political terms, uh, this was the place to go. And sure enough, they printed Kissinger having sex with the, the, the globe being the, the head of a woman. And it was to suggest that uh, sexually this guy was he's screwing the world. What do, you, what do you think? Would you do something like that? No, yeah. Uh, IBD is a family newspaper, so I think there's limitations to what we do. And, and I want to reach as, lo uh, you know, as large of an audience as possible. But, and I haven't seen a whole lot of, of what David has done, and mostly he does caricatures. Yeah. But they're really beautifully rendered. I mean, I, I really love them. You know, I, I, I am a uh, you know, hard right-winger, I guess you could say, uh, very conservative. But I'm looking at these these uh, issues on their merits, and that, it's not about personalities. And I'm an equal opportunity offender, but it, it's about when you make these drawings, how will it translate out to the audience, and how many people can I reach? And I think if you do something too crass, uh, it's going to be limited. Now, of course, you could get controversy about it, but. The controversy itself isn't always good. Sometimes it overshadows the point you're trying to make. And sometimes the hardest decision for an editorial cartoonist is really not running a cartoon. For instance, there, there's a, a, a period when Johnny Cochran died. Um, I thought of this great cartoon. The first image I thought of was Johnny Cochran in, in, in heaven. And, of course, Johnny had gotten O.J. Simpson off on a murder charge. And so he's at the gates of, uh, of heaven in St. Peter's saying, I'm sorry, Johnny, if the, if the halo don't fit, we don't admit. <laughs> it was a natural idea. But, you know, upon investigating who Johnny Cochran was, seeing all the things that he had done, he was a very generous person involved in very ch charitable activities. I couldn't define the man by one single action. So, you know, with political cartoons, it's almost just as important to decide what not to draw as it is what to draw. Here from 2012... Uh, the cut line is, and there is plenty more where that came from. We'll see it in a second. What's this? All right. This is, uh, this is on turning uh, corn into ethanol. You know, one of the byproducts of that, and, and uh, you know, we can go into the details of the inefficiency of using corn, basically corn-based fuel, uh, because it takes so much farmland to, to, to create it. Um, what they didn't realize was in doing this, you also limited the supply of food out there for third world countries, and that they are making the cost of corn actually rise because they are utilizing corn for ethanol. And so I decided to juxtapose that to the conditions that are going out in the third world, where corn is a very, very important element for them to survive, and yet uh, we're doing it because we want to push this movement toward fuel uh, toward alternative fuels, even even when it's in inefficient in its creation. So I was just showing the, the, the side effect of that. I read an account in your University of California at Irvine uh, alma mater uh, publication that you used to have Bill Clinton, an imitation of Bill Clinton, on your telephone answering service. Yeah. 
You know, one of my one of my dearest friends is Paul Shanklin, who does the uh, voice impersonations on the Rush Limbaugh show. In fact, I discovered Paul of all places in Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, I was invited to play golf. And, and uh, I have to tell you, you know, I, I surf because I'm from California, and the surfing in Memphis stinks. So <laughs> I had to find an alternative to on the this. Mississippi <laughs> River, right? And so a friend of mine invited me to go play golf with uh, a couple of his friends, and. Uh, it was the first time I'd ever, I'd ever played golf. And fortunately, there was one person who was more physically inept with a golf club than I was. And so I was leaning down to putt, and then all of a sudden I heard Ronald Reagan coaching me on this putt, and it was Paul. And, uh, boy, he is just an amazing impersonator. And, and uh, so I, I, um, I hooked him up with the Rush Limbaugh show, and so now he's doing the Rush Limbaugh show. But Paul, every once in a while, I would get him to uh, record my answering machine and do different voices for my answering machine. Now, I made the mistake once of, of giving him my code for the answering machine, and, uh, and I actually had to get rid of that answering machine because he would, he would, in the middle of the night, change my messages, and that created all kinds of problems. In fact, on Sundays, when I was doing USA Today for Mondays, Paul and I would get together and we would talk about parodies and skits for his songs, his song parodies. And then when I'm starting to draw my cartoon, you know, I become focused and I just ignore everything. And unbeknownst to me, Paul would answer my telephone as me. And later on in the day, I, I would have friends calling me back saying, what kind of medications are you on? Because you were just speaking gibberish. And I would say, well, no, I haven't spoken to you today at all. And it was Paul answering my phone as me. So if you want an obnoxious friends, there's one for you right there. A couple of years ago, uh Former Vice President Al Gore sold his television network, Current TV, to Al Jazeera for reportedly $500 million. And you have a cartoon back in 2013. Explain this one. Right, where Al is saying, um, so... I can read it. I, okay. So I sold my station to an anti-American network funded by an oil-rich Arab state. I always said I was a, uh, for a green economy. Right. I mean, it was kind of a, a, a ironic that uh, Al Gore who was supposedly uh, for the green movement turned out to be more of a capitalist than an environmentalist in this in this circumstance in fact uh, you know I, I i almost openly wept when al gore didn't win the presidency because i think that would have been a, a fine thing for editorial cartooning the next cartoon is from 2014 and it's very complicated it says on there it starts out with global cooling with the, a line through it it's on a blackboard Global warming, a line through it. Climate change, a line through it. And then climate disruption underlined. We'll explain this one. Well, this is, this is the, uh, you know, the rebranding re of the global, uh, or I should say the, the climate movement. Um, you know, first they were called global cooling uh, back in the 70s. Now they're called global warming. But then the earth hasn't warmed for the last 15 to 20 years, so now they have to change it to climate change. And now, that, even that wasn't good enough because people were making fun of that, so they wanted to change it to climate disruption. And then the little kid is writing on the, uh, the bottom corner of the uh, chalkboard, it's called weather. <laughs> and on the other side, you write, and you, you got to see this up close, and so you have to buy your book. Yes, exactly. It says the climate is warmer, and that's crossed out, and below it, it says cooler for now. Right, right, because uh, actually the climate has been pretty constant for the last 15 years. One thing I do like about that cartoon, you're going to have to buy the book to, to see it. it so if you look very carefully in the very top, it says E equals MC Hammer. Yes, I saw that. <laughs> this is one from 2009. 
Speaking of slavery, explain this one. Oh, yeah. This was on um, a government that's, that uh, has taken on the role of being uh, sort of the nanny state, uh, saying that, uh, you know, stop, stop your rhyming. We'll, we'll provide for you. Just do what we ask. And if, and if you do exactly what we ask, we might even provide you with some health care. And so it's sort of the plantation mentality of a government that sort of oversees everything that we, that we do. You know, I was up in New York, uh, and I was having breakfast, and they, of course they had a, a city person guiding me to make sure I didn't use too much salt on my, on my eggs. 2011, this cartoon, it's rather stark. Mm-hmm. What are you saying here? Here, you know, I, I think uh, w- when you think about Clarence Thomas, there's a lot of criticism with Clarence Thomas, and I'm, I'm just going to use him as one example. Um, I love Clarence Thomas. Uh, some of his writings are just amazingly uh, in-depth analysis of everything, and, and yet they criticize him because he never asked questions during the Supreme Court hearings. But it seems to me that when you look at these conservative blacks, these conservative African Americans, that ought to be models for the communities. Uh, the, the mainstream media sort of negated who they are, or their their member, members within political organizations. They're negating who they are because uh, by virtue of what their skin color is. You know, I'm, I'm half you know, half Spanish, uh, one quarter Spanish, one quarter Mexican, half Japanese, completely confused. I think in the 21st century, we ought to move beyond this kind of idiotic idea that race ought to be a determiner for anything. You know, I've got, uh, we've discussed before, I've got two brothers and two sisters, and they're all extremely intelligent, kind people, the exact opposite of me. Yeah, we, we come from the same genetic material. Um, I think at some point we're going to have to discover that we need to move beyond these kind Let of Let me issues. go back to that cartoon just for a second and tell you, and some people listen to this program, I want you to explain what, what they're looking at. Oh, so what, what they're looking at is back in the, back in the 50s, uh, they discriminated against blacks by having refrigerated water for the whites and then having these uh, kind of you know, uh, very poor uh, water delivery for the blacks. I'm saying that that uh, there are certain political people within the political hemisphere that have done the same thing to conservative blacks. That, that kind of discrimination is going on today. And the kind of things that they're allowed to say about people like Clarence Thomas, uh, you know, like Ben Carson, uh, I think is is horrible. You might find this interesting. This is, and I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce it right, his name is Borzu Doragi, uh, former L.A. Times Baghdad bureau chief, uh, back in 2007, talking about an Iraqi cartoonist. Watch this. This is a very poignant one by uh, Hudar Hamayir, and it, it just shows a, um, a scene where a, uh, a U.S. soldier is aiming a gun at an Iraqi guy, and then you have Uncle Sam drawing a portrait of this uh, scene, but instead of a gun, he's handing the flower to the Iraqi guy. You know, I asked Khudair uh, uh, Hamayer uh, whether he thought that this sort of cartoon was inflammatory, whether it might cause too much trouble, and he sort of laughed at, at me, and he said, you know, I, I go online and I check out the American cartoonists and the stuff they have about Bush and U.S. foreign policy and uh, American domestic and international politics is far more critical and far more nasty than anything I've ever drawn. What do you think? You know, it kind of reminds me of, uh, there, there were a bunch of us that, that, that uh, got to visit with Ronald Reagan uh, in the, in the uh, Rose Garden when he was president. He had this wonderful joke where he said, uh, he said, you know, the difference between the United States and the Soviet Union is in, in the uh, 
then the United States uh, political cartoonists can draw uh, political cartoons on the president of the United States. In the Soviet Union, the political cartoonists have to draw political cartoons on the president of the United States. And that's the one thing that we have here that's that's so uh, amazing about this country is the freedom of speech and the freedom of information that you can effectively criticize those people that run the government. It, it really uh, differentiates between who we are and what other countries are. We, you know, a bunch of us went down to Cuba, in Havana, Cuba, and I had uh, gotten the opportunity to talk to the information minister. And so I, I asked him about questions about, you know, the Brothers in Arms flight that was shot in the international airspace, about the uh, journalists that had been arrested, about the people that were handing out petitions simply to, to even talk about democracy that were arrested. And he refused to answer any of those questions. And so I, I said, well, let me ask you just one last question. You know, I talked to your reporters and I talked to some of the cartoonists there in Cuba, and they're not allowed to draw images of Fidel Castro. They cannot draw images of Che Guevara. And in America, we believe that, uh, you know, the uh, country that cannot make fun of its leaders is usually a country that's imprisoned by its leaders. So I'm going to ask you this one question. What's your favorite Fidel Castro joke? And his face just went white. And little beads of sweat gathered on his, on his forehead. And he finally said, I don't know one, but I'll tell you one later. That's the difference between the United States and this freedom that so many people have sacrificed for to ensure. You know, we have boys, uh, men and women out there that are fighting to, to guarantee our liberty and our freedom. This freedom that we take for granted. I don't think any editorial cartoonist ought to. I think it's a, a very cherished responsibility to use this freedom to educate the masses, to make sure that they understand that this government works for the people. Here's a cartoon you made some people who have an Iranian connection mad at you for this, and I don't know what you title it, whether it's, let's put it on the screen, uh, call it uh, The Cockroaches? Right. You know, this cartoon uh, it received a lot of criticism. If you look at, if you look very carefully on the cartoon, um, on the bottom of the grill, it talks about terrorism, specifically about extremism within Iran. So For, let me just explain. It's it's the country of Iran, right. and it's got a sewer uh, lid over it and cockroaches coming out of it. Right, and on the sewer lid, I think it says extremism, although I can't read a bit. Uh, it, it really is talking about a very specific segment of the population of Iran that is responsible uh, for engendering the surrogates of evil and spreading chaos within the region. And, and uh, you know, I, I did receive a lot of criticism, but, but what I said to that was, you know, Iran is responsible for a lot of the, uh, the chaos that's going on. Uh, this kind of expansion of, of uh, radical extremism, you know, it started in Iran first. Well, I mean, you can argue that the Wahhabists in Saudi Arabia are also doing the same thing. But uh, these groups, when, when you look at the population, I think the average age is, what, like 28, and they're very pro-Western. But the theological dictators of that regime and the Revolutionary Guard use these surrogates of evil to create chaos in the region. One of the things in this cartoon, with the cockroach uh, cartoon, is that it shows the cockroaches spreading to Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria and um, even to Israel and the Gaza Strip and uh, Pakistan and, and uh, all the countries around it. Yeah. What, what made people the maddest about this? 
Well, yeah, I think the Iranians were mad because I, I had characterized uh, the, the country as a whole as a refuge for cockroaches. But I was very specific in the extremists, I think. You know, this is the one thing that the people, I don't think, realize that this expansion, this uh, Iranian expansion that's going on is very dangerous. And when they become a nuclear power, you know, mutually assured destruction only works when, you, when the other side doesn't want to die. And because of this, uh, this uh, nuclear arms race that's going to be going on in the region, in a region that has lots of oil money but very little reverence for human life, it's going to become a much, much more dangerous world. One last one. This is the 2014. You can see it on the screen. This is the World Trade Center. You've got people falling to their death. And the one fellow says, how do you feel about enhanced interrogation? This will be our last one. So explain uh, this one. And right. this, this caused a lot of feedback to you. It did, it did. And, and uh, you know, I'm not afraid of, of the feedback. Uh, you know, there's a real question as to uh, the responsibility of our intelligence services to figure out where are these uh, dangers of terrorism are coming from. And I, I think because uh, when you look at this war that we're embroiled in right now, this war on terror, it can only be effective if you know what's going on in the ground. By, ta by taking away the devices that allow you to figure out what the machinery is that's generating this terrorism, you expose us to, to danger. Now, we can debate about waterboarding. You know, our SEALs go through waterboard training. I don't think it's uh, torture, frankly. But if you just blow up terrorists and you don't find out who they are, how they're connected, you know, in the San Bernardino case, we got their electronics. We can sort of put together a trail of who these people are. That's a much better way to secure our safety. Only got 30 seconds and one last question. How did you get Dick Cheney and Rush Limbaugh to write uh, the forward and the afterward? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, very uh, honored to say that uh, you know, I've I become friends with uh, Dick and Lynn Cheney. Uh, some friends of mine had them over di for, for dinner, and I got to meet them. I've always been a fan of the vice president and, and uh, you know, sort of his view on politics. And, and, of course, Rush, I've had a relationship with Rush for a long time, um, not, not only with Paul Shanklin, but uh, prior to that. You know, he used to run my cartoons in the uh, Limbaugh letter. Besides buying this book for $28, yeah. um, where can people see you on a regular basis besides Investors Business Daily? Well, if you go to the website, www.investors.com slash cartoons, you'll see my cartoons every single day. You can get me at Twitter, Twitter at uh, Ramirez Tunes, and on Facebook at uh, Michael Ramirez hyphen political cartoonist. The name of the book is Give Me Liberty or Give Me Obamacare. Michael Ramirez, thank you very much for joining It's a real pleasure to be here. transcripts or to give us your comments about this program, visit us at qnda.org. Q&A programs are also available as C-SPAN podcasts.